2: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Marlene Even. We're seeing a shift in the way social media platforms look and behave with all eyes on TikTok. This week on Fourth Estate, recent changes by social media giant Meta have resulted in a Facebook news feed with, well, less news. Arguably, it's no longer called a news feed since early this year, it's just known as feed. So what exactly are Australians hungry for and where does the media sit at the dinner table? Facebook has been distancing themselves from the news for some years now looking towards short-form videos like their competitor TikTok. In a recent announcement, Meta will not be renewing funds to news organisations like The Washington Post and The New York Times to publish content on the Facebook's news tab in the United States. In this episode, we ask what does this all mean for Australian media and unpack the changing relationship between news media companies and big tech. To discuss this and more, we're joined by Rath Gatuma, reporter for Guardian Australia, and Nick Bernie hady technology editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. Hello, nice to be here. Now let's kick off with a direct question to you both. Is news still valuable to Facebook?
1: I'm happy to jump in on that. It has some value. There's no doubt that news content Is still widely shared on Facebook that it generates discussion, that discussion generates engagement, and that ultimately generates ad revenue because people spending time on the platform is what leads to them seeing and and clicking on the ads that make Facebook money. But what I think is changing is the relative balance of the value that Facebook sees itself getting from creators, that is, influencers and creators of other kinds, versus the news media.
0: And I think I'd like to add there uh, about the alternate aspect of of the relationship, I guess, if you flip the coin and the value that media get from Facebook, I think last year's high court ruling in the Vola defamation case has put media companies in a difficult position to produce content and share on Facebook. Um, The ruling found that publishers, including media companies, that allow third party comments on social media will be held legally responsible for them. So if those comments are found to be defamatory, the publisher is liable. And going to what Nick said, it's a bit difficult to be able to facilitate that discussion that is important to add revenue, not just to the platform, but also to uh, readership for those media companies when they are unable to facilitate or monitor those comments. So it's putting a new pressure on publishers where digital engagement is the basis of business models for these news organizations and the most important metric to track. But it's difficult to do that when, when there is that legal barrier as well. So that's an added layer of complexity, I think is important to note.
2: And if Facebook does pivot away from news and becomes a news desert, where do you two think that leaves media companies and, and where does it leave the world? Nick, I'll go to you first on that. Even if
1: Facebook is not prioritising its relationships with traditional news media players in the same way, it does not mean that there won't be any news on Facebook. So one alternative is just that you don't have the same kind of trusted or curated news that Facebook has at various points promoted in a dedicated tab or on the feed, but you could still have users either posting links to news items or summaries of news items. There are groups on Facebook in Australia where people just wholesale rip off articles from mainstream Australian publications and then discuss those. And often they have a political bent. They're groups that will find and cherry-pick articles that agree with a left-wing persuasion or an anti-vax persuasion or whatever it happens to be. And I think that that kind of echo chamber is a problem because it means that people don't get challenged with perspectives presented fairly that they don't agree with and if there's no news altogether on Facebook again then then that is an issue for consumers who may find themselves without any trusted source of information at the place that they go most frequently and may have come used to acquiring news from because it's not the case that those people can't find news anywhere like they can watch the 7.30 report, they can uh, just load up news websites directly. But for people who might not be directly positively engaged in something like politics, it can be very helpful to have at least a casual engagement with the news media.
2: And Rafka, what are your thoughts on that? Is there a big impact in Facebook pivoting away from news? I think
0: what I'm seeing is a move to on-demand news delivered, often in video, to where young people already are. So where there was a less engaged young audience on Facebook, there is a more engaged young audience on places like Instagram, YouTube, and especially TikTok. Um, And it's kind of where we are seeing these complex world issues delivered to feeds that young people are already on for their entertainment in small bite-sized chunks. So it's easier to understand and quicker to consume. Um, And there are downsides that you can point out here, obviously, if you have condensed content, it is going to lack that depth of context and background. People might find it dumbed down, even condescending, but your opinion on using TikTok and YouTube and Instagram for news becomes a matter of weighing up pros and cons, I think, and determining if there are ways around those cons. So I think if there is a a move away from news on Facebook, there will be news found on other platforms uh, and platforms stepping in to fill in the gaps for young people who are not engaged with traditional media outlets and, and want the news delivered to where they are?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It probably breaks down by demographics. Like the person who is getting news on TikTok is probably younger than the person who's getting news on Instagram. They might be reading something like the Daily Oz, the Quite popular instagram australian news site and that person is probably younger again than someone who's getting news on facebook who might be in their 40s 50s or 60s so each of these platforms because they've got a different segmentation of the market they direct news traffic to people of a different age group
2: so australian australia's media relationship with meta has been a tumultuous one to say the least do you think last year's Facebook news ban was a wake up call on the media's reliance on Meta?
1: Yeah, yes, yes, and no. So, th- this is a really hotly disputed point. Meta, for a long time, has said we provide value to the news media, we drive enormous numbers of clicks from our sites to news media sites. And those people might read an article and generate some ad revenue for, for the media. If they hit a paywall at a publication like The Australian, for example, or Sydney Morning Herald, they might choose to subscribe. They could become a voluntary subscriber to The Guardian. Even if they don't do it on that article, they might do it down the line. So Meta says it's actually a net contributor to the media and that it's a relatively small part of what they do whereas the argument from the government and from the ACCC and many of the media companies was actually uh, we contribute a lot to Facebook and Meta and so there's this funny thing where clearly there's some degree of coexistence but there's very different perspectives on who is benefiting primarily out of that relationship as to whether it was a wake-up call I don't think that event was really the wake-up call. I think it was more that there's been a long-growing awareness in the media industry, in Australia and abroad, that a pure, free, ad-supported model does not sustain organisations that do serious journalism. And therefore, there was a growing drive. It was particularly spearheaded by News Corp. To try and get the social media organisations that benefited from free online news to pay some kind of money for that, and the cynical case there is that that was essentially a shakedown, a way of getting social media companies just to kick in for the maintenance of the news media. Of course, many media organisations dispute that, and there's there's good reasons for believing it's not true. But I, I think that's the truth of it: is that there was that that was a long time coming, and then the the News media bargaining code ructions were the kind of culmination of that process that had started with an awareness several years before.
2: And do you think that news that news media bargaining code by Australia actually impacted Facebook's withdrawal from news that we've that we've recently heard in the US?
1: Uh, no, I don't. So I think that what has happened is Australia set up its news media bargaining code. Facebook was very unhappy with that. They made that clear in public submissions. They made that clear by withdrawing content from Australia and then only came back to the bargaining table when the government made a series of accommodations that essentially meant that Facebook, now called Meta, and Google could essentially be outside the media bargaining code, which has got some advantages for them in terms of not having to go through an arduous Arbitration process, not having to disclose data, for example, um, as long as they made major deals with the media and paid a whole lot of money. The exact amount is not clear, but it's certainly tens of millions of dollars annually to the Australian media collectively. Um, That was a sort of template that some other countries have taken a look at, Canada being a very notable example. But in the US, the deals have been struck separately. There's just been a push by Facebook to do deals with the media. And the payments are similar. They're in the scale of, of tens of millions of dollars. That was then. Times have changed. And I think what is driving that is less the Australian deal, which is sort of humming along, and more two things. One is that tech stocks globally have been absolutely hammered. So, Netflix is down 70, 80%. Shopify, which runs most of the, or a whole bunch of stores online, has cut 10% of its staff. That's a thousand people without jobs. Major companies, Meta among them, have done things like big hiring freezers. And that global downturn has put pressure on Facebook and it's having to make cuts and accommodations. That's one thing that's driving this. And the second is TikTok. TikTok is a huge competitor. And it is a competitor which is eating Facebook's lunch. And it's doing it not so much through news media, but through creators. And so that has become an increasingly important battleground for the two platforms as they compete for young people's attention. One way of getting that is through the creators that that people love. And I should probably add a third, which is that there's suggestions in reporting that these payments that Facebook were making didn't do quite what they wanted, which allegedly, was to have a friendlier relationship with the media.
2: And we are going to be talking about TikTok um, competing with audiences to get their attention, but I did want to just quickly question you on one of the points you just made there. When we're talking about um, those media deals that Australian media companies made that you that you referred to there, a lot of those deals were for about three years. Now, when we look at the The cuts that Facebook is having to make, the fact that the revenue for the first time has gone down, should Australia be looking over their their shoulder once that three year those three year plans have come to an end and will be needed to be renewed?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know the exact nature of the deals that were struck. I don't know how rigid they are for those three years if there's any capacity to get out of them before then but certainly once they expire uh i think australian media organizations will need to be really concerned and and looking at this very seriously because the risk is that the, the deals are not renewed now what could happen then potentially is that the media bargaining code actually comes into force now that will be a call for whoever is the treasurer of the day when they look at the circumstances and look at how much news remains on facebook's platform but Facebook will not be doing it at the last minute uh, as it was last time when it tried to pull news off its site and did so in a kind of pretty haphazard, almost comically haphazard fashion, removing things like the Weather Service and North Shore Mums and other community groups, some of which, of course, are much, you know, much lesser laughing matter groups that do things like domestic violence support, for example. Um, but they will have had a much longer time to prepare, and so they may be able to do that in a more considered fashion that that nonetheless helps them evade the Australian bargaining code. Um, And then it will be a very hard call for whichever politician has to make it about whether to invoke that code and therefore force Meta to do deals with news organizations. Because of course, for a politician, going up against a big, well-used, well-funded organization like Meta is not exactly a thrilling prospect. Although on the flip side, being aligned with the media can be, of course, very valuable for a politician.
2: Not for the faint-hearted at all. Um, Rafka, a Facebook spokesperson told Axios that most people do not come to Facebook for news and as a business, it doesn't make sense to over-invest in areas that don't align with user preference. Do you agree with that? And are Australians different to American
0: Facebook users? I think it goes back to what Nick said earlier in the podcast, where it definitely differs depending on the demographic you're talking about. Um, I'm more well versed with young people and their movements on social media, and there is a definite difference in the way they engage with news, not looking to Facebook first, even not looking to Instagram first, but instead going to YouTube and to TikTok. So I think depending on the demographic you're talking about, there is some validity there.
2: And you have been creating TikTok news for Guardian Australia. Can you give us an insight into TikTok's popularity? Why are social media sites
0: wanting to become more like TikTok? Matilda Bosley at The Guardian really carved out this space on TikTok where she built an audience of young people who are loyal and engaged and wanting to consume news that they otherwise would not have sought out to consume. And I think it's almost like a cult of personality that TikTok offers the chance to build. You have audiences, especially young people, wanting to see a face they know, a face they trust that they can relate to in the place that they already are. Uh, it's this influencer principle, but instead of influencing consumption of products or lifestyles, it's, it's news. Um, you build a brand identity, consistency and content, maybe even a niche in a topic, and then you have loyalty from this audience. And this audience becomes engaged with you and by extension, the news that you offer. Um, and we've seen media companies chasing algorithms and features that other platforms do well that attract audiences that they don't because they don't have them in the first place. This move of the TikTok algorithm to Instagram and Facebook, where it is a rapid style vertical first video in the form of not Instagram stories, but reels and longer IGTVs is pushing video content from creators and accounts that you might not follow, which is just like the algorithm on TikTok. And we saw a similar feature change in Instagram a few years ago when they introduced Snapchat's most popular feature, Stories. And now Instagram Stories feel almost as natural and inherent to the app as the post on the grid. Um, And they have also been monetized. They are used as the prime source of sponsorship by influencers on the app but also a place where the platform itself can boost advertisements and therefore monetize for themselves. So it seems that this is what is happening with an adoption of a TikTok style video, pushing content and changing the algorithm. It's an opportunity to monetize and an attempt, I think, at keeping their audience on the platform when there is another platform adopting a different format that is appearing to be more popular. Although, again, that will depend on the demographic you're looking at
1: really interesting how are you balancing doing oh and 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 are you finding that the audience is there because they they really liked Matilda or Rafka or because they really like the Guardian and like do you have to try and be like I'm I'm keeping my personal brand a bit cloistered off so as to (laughs) not overshine the master how are you balancing that
0: no Matilda is the absolute master I'm filling in on on TikTok for her while she's on leave um and you do see a difference in the audience that you have. Some people are there because they want news, other people are there because they love Matilda's personality, they follow her independently, they followed her to The Guardian uh, and they're loyal to her and so you actually do see a dip in views, a change in the types of comments that are left on videos because it's that cult of personality around someone that that an audience trusts and are loyal to uh, not seeing that same face anymore. Um, It's Interesting, it's it's a, a weird balance to toe the line of and I'm, I'm definitely just <laughs> in the shadow of the master. I'm very uh, lucky to have been <laughs> trained by her and, and learning from, from the space that she really did cultivate and carve out on the platform.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it seems like the same dynamic that a media organisation would have once had with the star columnist. Yes. Like they want to build up the star columnist that want to say, come read the Sydney Morning Herald, we've got Ross Gittins. On the other hand, for media organisations, you don't necessarily want your star columnist to become too big because then if they go somewhere else, mm-hmm. what do you yeah. do? You know, then then your brand has become suborned to a personal brand. I think we've seen some of this in the United States but people like Taylor mm-hmm. Brands, the, the great tech journalist, has, has spoken about and got angry at restrictions at the New York Times on how she could use her mm-hmm. social media. Maybe maybe that will come here in different ways.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. When you look at the US... Uh, Figures like Johnny Harris, he is now independent. He was huge on Vox. He started Vox Borders, which garnered millions upon millions of views and uh, experimented with and basically created a whole different format of delivering news uh, to an audience on a platform, different to TikTok, but uh, similar in the way they cultivated a a new audience. Um, And when he went independent, you saw his audience follow him from Vox to his independent channel. So there is that question of, of... is the audience the audience of the publisher or is it the audience of the identity?
2: Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting point. And I think um, I really love to follow the idea of gaining an audience and gaining a community on social media. I mean, we saw this year's digital news report, um, which came out of the University of Canberra, and they found people who use social media as their main source of news are least likely to know journalists' names, with Facebook users having the least recall for journalists or news brands. But you just mentioned there that there there actually is a bit of a following towards, like, for example, Matilda on Guardian. So do you disagree with that finding or do you think it's an issue about cultivating a news brand and knowing journalists' names
0: on social media? I think it depends on what journalists' names you're talking about. I think if they are journalists who are creating content specifically for the app and the audience is there then the audience may know their name more likely than they will a columnist that they don't read on the same publisher's online web page if that makes sense
1: yeah I, I think that this is probably again a question of segmentation like there's the 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 newsletter platform substack is one that tends to have many of its biggest stars be people who are very large on social media and that's because there's a sort of virtuous circle of I'll promote my sub stack on, on social media which I need to do because I'm an independent news brand essentially at that point and uh, then I'll get more subscribers to my sub stack and then I'll keep promoting it and that can be a kind of virtuous loop and then sometimes those people end up sort of dipping into mainstream publications as well. There's a guy called Alex Kantrowitz, who's a technology writer, used to be at Bloomberg, went independent, but he still writes quite a bit for uh, publications like Slate. Um, Again, that can be a useful way of the news organisation building the brand of an independent writer, but sort of buttressing each other. But then there's a sort of different style of journalism, which is to try and be less personality-focused, less personal brand-focused, trying to recede and just be very neutral and plain, and that's probably a much harder model to do if you're trying to build up a personal brand so as to establish a kind of business on your own. And therefore, to some extent, if, if you're a news organisation and that's, that's the approach that you're trying to get your journalists to stick to, you may not mind so much that, if, that the people who are on Facebook don't know the names of individual journalists. You may care more about the awareness of your, your masthead brand as a corporate um, news identity.
0: And I think on this point of building audiences and communities via social media, there is also like a a complexity and a question not between an independent journalist and their publisher, but also the platform and the publisher. There is a question of do you really own your audience in terms of does the platform actually own that audience? We see with changes to algorithms skewing how the audience you might have built actually can access your content. It's more difficult to get that content in front of those same same eyes that you would have uh, before an algorithm change. Um, And it also seems more difficult to direct audiences from the platform that the content is made from to off-platform content. Like the click-through rate is often difficult to upkeep from Instagram onto an online webpage or even a a remote podcast. So like you mentioned, Nick, things like email sign-up newsletters are relied on by uh, independent identity journalists or publishers to build an audience that will follow you wherever you go. There is that complexity there as well.
1: Yeah, it's a really, it's a hard thing. And it's at the core of this question about the value of news media to the platforms and vice versa. A a single reader being referred might be actually very low value to a news site if if it's not likely to lead to someone signing up. Whereas the value of many articles over time on Facebook, even though they may not be the core reason that someone has gone there, may be very great indeed. And it poses a real question for businesses that are going all in on, on social channels. Is just, can they actually convert enough people to, to make bank and, and to support serious journalism? And, or, or will, like Rafa is saying, will it be another case where Facebook changes the algorithm, changes the incentives, and, and news media or creators end up sort of dancing like marionettes trying to follow the latest trend?
2: And coming back to TikTok and how you use that, what are the limits
0: of using TikTok
2: as a serious news platform?
0: There are a lot of uh, issues that you can raise with creating content that is more condensed, uh, a lot, often more rapid fire and obviously a lot shorter in order to engage a, a different audience that are there for easy consumption of news. Um Clearly, there is going to be less room for in-depth context fleshing out background of a story, but I think it is important to remember that fact, objectivity, neutrality are not mutually exclusive to creativity, condensed news, rapid fire, here is what you need to know. Um, I guess your opinion on using TikTok for serious news becomes a matter of weighing up those pros and cons and determining if there is a way to work around those cons and questions of condensed news almost sounding dumbed down or even condescending. I think if you are willing to invest in a news evolution on TikTok, uh, you will be able to find ways around the initial format maybe coming across as not as serious.
2: Now, finally, with all the changes coming, it does pose a bit of a conundrum for the media companies do they once again change and chase the algorithm or do they just concentrate on their core business and mission? What do you both think? I'll go to you, Nick, first.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty happy I don't have to make that call um, for the Sydney Morning Herald or anyone else because there's really good arguments on both sides. Like, in the, in the 2019 election, I went on the road and not with a political leader or, or politician, just on my own. And I went from Hobart to Cairns, just chatting to people about what they thought. And the way that I started off was initially asking people, hey, what do, you, what do you think of the election? What do you think of the prime minister? Who are you voting for? And the answers were typically like, oh, mate, don't know, don't care, no idea, all a pack of bastards. And that answer was was coming from from anyone, you know, any age, any gender, any creed. And what I then found was that that was not a reflection of not actually caring, because once you drilled down and started asking people what they did for a job, oh, they're an aged care nurse, oh, your, your daughter works in early childhood education, oh, you start caring about uh, what's going to happen with wages or... or, or teaching standards and then people are really interested in politics it was a reflection on a lack of engagement with formal political news and so there were many people for whom the baseline of engagement with the news was literally none it was kind of is julia gillard still the prime minister don't think it's tony abbott definitely not kevin rudd and so even what you know might be traduced as like not that serious news on on tiktok or instagram meets its audience, and it can be incredibly important in informing people about what is going on. There's a really valuable civic function there, and it's important also that it comes from a serious news outlet that's, that's beholden to some standards rather than just a kind of yet another wise-cracking, pugilistic pundit who wants to tell you how all of their opinions, and the people that they agree with are right, and not give the other side a look in. You know, that, that, that is genuinely really important. On the flip side, The media has been down the road of giving away free news in the hopes that at some point, somewhere, money will occur before, and it has not worked. It has not worked really badly. It has created an expectation that people get news for free. And it is fueled by various sites that that do sort of journalistic coverage here and overseas, just just taking other journalists' output and, and repackaging it for you know for pennies on what used to be subscription dollars um so i also understand the wariness of, of outlets that aren't eager to chase yet another fad especially because facebook is a very meta is a very rational business and they will change the algorithms as necessary to suit the goals of their shareholders as any you know big capitalistic business does so uh there must be some sort of balance for editorial leaders to strike between those, those two polarised opposites. Exactly what it is, like I said, so glad I do not have to make that call.
2: And Rafka, what about you? Is it worth chasing the algorithms or should we be focusing
0: on our mission and business? I, I don't think, again, I, I have the expertise to comment and I'm glad I'm not in that position to make the call. I think, Nick, Uh, summed it up or painted the picture really well on on the line that needs to be towed. But I think it comes down to a question of what a a media organisation sees the value in when entering the realm of producing news content for social media. What is the metric that they are going to be measuring success on those platforms with? It it most likely won't be a monetary one, but if it is about building brand recognition, building a, a new loyal engaged young audience that there, there might be value in looking at investment of time energy and, and potentially resources there
2: thank you both so much for taking the time to join fourth estate
0: thank you it's been really fun
2: thank you very much on that note i'd like to thank rafka Tuma and nick Bernie Haiti for being on fourth estate and thanks for listening to the program this edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics, and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to our executive producer, Anthony Dockerell. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening.